plan because nobody was around and I could do that when nobody was around. And then I looked down and I was standing on an anthill. And I looked down and I had ants on my pants and I had to dance. Did that ever happen to you? Well, it happened right.
Well, I happen to be the only boy that's a member of American Heritage Girls, and that's true. I am actually the official shepherd. Uh, so what we're going to talk to him about tonight is peace. There's a place in Colossians chapter 3 where it says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. What are some things that friends should have? What are some characteristics that friends should have? Yes, Michaela? Yes? They should hug each other. They should hug each other. That's very nice. And give each other presents. And Michaela? On first base. Love each other, not being hatred to each other. Love each other, no hatred. Seely? Respect their wishes. Respect their wishes. Loyalty and honor. Loyalty and honor. Aubrey? Um, um, Break peace, bring peace, yeah, gratitude. Care about each other. Now, these are all things that are very important in this way, okay? Did you know that most people tend to not get along with other people? If you look at what's going on in the world, some, have you ever watched the news? I have. A lot of the time when people are watching the news, uh, there's a lot of conflict out there, right? People are getting hurt, people are arguing, people are not respecting each other, they're not being kind to each other. One of the most important things that Jesus ever did is he told us that we should love each other the way that we want to be loved. What do you think about that? Now you talked about what friendship is like. Why don't you tell me what it's like, how you would like to be loved by other people? I would like, like to get friends and hugs yeah. and play with and, and play, play with them. That's nice. Yeah. I would like to be forgiven. To be forgiven? Yeah, that's very important. Michaela. I would like everyone to stop hurting themselves and each other. Yeah, to stop and each other. Grazie. To be trusted. To be trusted. Yeah, yeah. These are important things. <clears throat> Here's where it gets hard to do them. All of us have this idea about what we would like others to be like toward us and what we would like to be there to, like toward them, and then somebody doesn't do it, right? Instead of being nice to us, somebody's mean to us. Instead of being kind to us, somebody's unfair with us. Instead of talking to us nicely, they talk to us rudely, right? 
And then instead of returning to them forgiveness and kindness, we get angry, don't we? We get angry and vengeful. And if they're not nice to us, we're not going to be nice to them. And if they think they're going to get us, we're going to get them twice as bad and all of that. That's one of the reasons that one of the, Jesus said one of the most important things is to have a forgiving heart. You know, everybody was mean to him. They were so bad to him, at the end, they even took his life. And do you know what he gave back to them in response to that? He gave back to them love, and he saved them, and he brought him into their family. You know, there's not a single one of us that hasn't sinned. Really, every one of us at one time or another has done the wrong thing. And every one of us at one time or another has not been loving with others. But the most important thing to spreading love is to make sure that we forgive others when they offend or sin toward us, right? Now, this takes a big heart. I know it's a big challenge for you guys because it's a challenge for everybody. But one of the most important lessons you'll ever learn in life is that no matter what people do to you, you're not going to hold it against them. You're going to give back love, right? So here's the thing. Also, another thing is sometimes when people are not polite to you or not as kind to you as there should be, there's something going on in their life or in their heart that's causing them pain and suffering. And so when you go up to them and you try to be nice to them, they just can't be nice back, right? But if you talk to them and, they're kind, and you're kind to them for a while, they will break that down and they will start to be kind to you. So this is the way it'll be when we go out of this room We will show people love and we will show them respect and we will treat them with dignity and all of these things. But it's most important that all of you do it for each other because everyone in this room is a friend to everyone else in this room. If you ever kind of feel like you're not, that's not true. You're all friends and you're together and you're all a part of this troop. So it's super important that you all have in mind this and listen to this, that you all accept each other that you all love each other, and that you all forgive each other. So if anybody has any problems with anybody else, let this be the new point. Let this be the point where you put that aside and put it behind you and move on and decide to love each other. Because really, it's a decision. It's so easy to dislike and be mad at each other, but we want to make sure everybody here loves each other and treats each other with honor and respect. You guys agree with that? Yes. Yes. I know you do, but sometimes it's just nice for it to be said, right? Well, let's pray. Lord, our God and Father, give us big hearts. Give us big hearts that are good at forgiving each other. Make us so hungry to forgive each other, Lord God, that we forgive things as soon as they happen, and we don't ever let them get in between us and other people so that we start to have hatred or consternation or, or any kind of division between us. Let us be bound together with your love. Let us experience true friendship with each other and especially true friendship with you. And we thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so now that you've had time to talk about it, those of you who want to go through Hebrews, raise your hand. Those of you who want to go through Hebrews. Those of you who want to go through Romans, raise your hand. What? Hebrews wins. Oh, come on, man.
I'm sorry. I don't. Hey, I don't make the rules. I just, I just, I just follow them. Where's my husband? She wants another vote. <laughs> Hebrews, it is. Now, the first thing to know about the book of Hebrews is that it is not about coffee. Yeah, it is. It's tea. <laughs> <laughs> When they were putting together the canon, now, what we call the canon, that's the group of scriptures that we have in the Bible. You know, there were a lot of books that were just automatically part of the Bible. It's almost like they didn't even decide. There were just so much part of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, nobody ever even talked about those, right? Then there were some books that were added to the canon of scripture later. The reason why is because they were recognized as being scripture but you have to remember, they did not actually have a copying machine at this time, right? And you couldn't send an email, and you could not attach a file. So some of the books got around to everybody a little later than the other ones. One of the issues about Hebrews is it's one of the few books in the New Testament that does not have attached a particular author. So there's been this discussion in the church. Is it written by the Apostle Paul? Is it written by this person? Is it written by that person? The Apostle Paul, as we know, kind of specialized in his ministry in speaking to the Gentiles. He's the one that traveled the entire known world three different times to bring the gospel to all kinds of people he'd never known before, going all the way to France and Germany and all the way back across the north coast of Africa. So some people have thought that the Apostle Paul didn't write this specifically because it's written to the Jews. It's written for us too, but there's a reason why it's called Hebrews. Hebrews is the old word from all the way back in the book of Genesis where it talks about Heber, a descendant of Abraham, right? Before Noah. And from that term comes the Hebrews, and the Hebrews have been known as Hebrews ever since that time. But here's the thing. There's also not a lot in this book to say that the Apostle Paul didn't write it. I'm one of the people that favors what's called Pauline authorship, that it was written by Paul. Because it was accepted by the entire early church and they all recognized it as scripture, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter much. It's as much of the Bible as any other part of the Bible. And when you go through it, it's markedly teaching exactly what the rest of the books of the Bible teach, right? So it's not like there's a problem or anything like that. But a lot of the books, after the books by the Apostle Paul, tend to be put into the Bible in the order in which the entire church said, no, this is the Bible. This is scripture. Because what did you do when you went to church and you had 66 books before? In the first century AD, before books were invented, <laughs> you know? Because this became a big deal when? Around when? 1500s, right? Pretty recent in history. Back then, what did they have? They used to unroll the scroll. So if you were at a church, you had 66 scrolls. Imagine trying to cross-reference that with your Thompson Cross-Reference Bible, right? So you would unroll one scroll and you would read a certain part of scripture and when you wanted to go to another book and you had to know the Bible pretty well because you had to know which scrolls you were going into, right? Now we can just look it all up and we can print these handy dandy little pamphlets that we call Bibles, but then the Bible was a collection of books, right? And there are some books that even today scholars argue about but plainly didn't make it. 
We have different names for those books, like apocryphal books and pseudepigraphal books. There's lots of big names for them, but they're basically just books that were written at the same time that were never intended to be a part of the Bible. There's this classic discussion that goes on between Protestants and Catholics, because if you know or you grew up Catholic, they got a few books in there that we don't think are part of the Bible. But the reason why is because the early church didn't really think they were part of the Bible, right? There are some interesting books, some Jewish history books and such, but they're not scripture. So we take this collection very seriously. All through history, this has been the Bible. It's still our Bible, but that's why Hebrews come so late. It's not because it's not important. It's because the entire church finally came to the place where they go, this is as much as the Bible as Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now, the book of Hebrews goes straight for a lot of things that take a while to get to in the Gospels. You know how the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John work. They usually start with the birth of Jesus, and then they go through the beginning of his ministry. Then they go through the events and teaching of his life, and then they get kind of close to the crucifixion and the things leading up to it, and then he dies. And then he rises from the dead, and then he tells them, go forth. Because the death of Jesus was not the end of the story, it was really the beginning in a strange way, right? So this one, because those are presumed to be a part of the text, it starts in a little bit of a different place. Like a lot of the writings of the Apostle Paul, this book starts out by dealing with controversies. I've tried to say many times to you, the early church was not a perfect house of prayer in which everybody had a perfect understanding of Scripture. The New Testament is a book where almost every book in there is attacking a heresy or a moral problem in the church. So from the very beginning, there was trouble, so to speak. And the reason that that's genius in the way God sets this up is he's been able to deal with every controversy that's ever happened since then just on the basis of the way that the apostles dealt with those controversies in the first century AD. In other words, there has been nothing new under the sun. Let me... Let's see if from the very beginning you can kind of identify what the first problem is that the author of Hebrews, who I'm just going to refer to as Paul, even though his name doesn't occur in the book, what are the issues that he thinks he has to deal with in here? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So you know that the writer is going to deal with a problem. He's saying things that are true. He's teaching true theology, but he's also being reactive and saying there's something that's come up that's contrary to this. So just what are your presumptions about the text here? What is this author going after? What's he trying to say from the very beginning? Bueller. Bueller. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's an obscure comedy reference from the 1980s. Uh, I was going to say the title of Blackbird's chapter says the supremacy of God's son. Well, that's cheating, though. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Always remember that those little things in bold there are things put in by the publisher because we don't want to rely on them too much. 
But perhaps something that they're reacting to is some kind of a diminution of Jesus as the eternal Son of God. That he feels like right out of the gates, he's got to deal with the idea that possibly Jesus was an angel or a created being or a very powerful being, but not God himself. There's many different ways you can go with it. But the Apostle Paul comes right out of the gates. And then he starts to do an apologetic in favor of Jesus over the angels, right? They took angels a lot more seriously in those days than we do now, which might seem like kind of a strange thing to say. But all the religions had angels, right? They took angels for granted that angels were interacting with men and gods all the time. They did, right? That they were invisible, but always working around us and perhaps in and among us, depending on their particular religion. So the idea that Jesus, he rose from the dead and he raised the dead and he walked on water, wow, he must have been a great angel or a jinn or a genie or a demon or something other than God would have been something that would have come to mind, right? So he goes on in verse five to say, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now we read these verses, some of which are being quoted when we go through an entire psalm, like Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3. These are all psalms that are talking about Jesus Christ. So while we go through the liturgy in church, you might be thinking to yourself, we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament around here. The Old Testament is only the Old Testament until the New Testament. Because every bit is valid and every bit is about Jesus Christ. So you are my son, today I have begotten thee. Does that ring any bells? This is the one that he's quoting and saying, to which of the angels did God ever say this? And it's a rhetorical question, which means the answer, of course, is none. God never spoke like this to the angels. Then he says again, he quotes another verse, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Again, the question is, to which of the angels did he ever talk like this? And the answer is none. Now, you guys know that there are powerful religious movements today that still call Jesus an angel. One of the most famous is the Jehovah's Witnesses who identify him as the Archangel Michael, a powerful being and a God, so to speak, but not the God. Another would be the Mormons who classify Jesus and Satan as brothers, right? And say that they are all, in a sense, angels, right? But even God himself, God the Father, was at one time an angel in another universe who had another God that created him and so on and so on back through infinity. Well, here's one of the reasons we have to stop at a place like this and recognize the import of what Paul is saying. And the import is he ain't no angel. He's not even a created being. That's why he stopped in that initial uh, uh, paragraph and said he's the one that created everything. Jesus or the Father? No, he's identifying Jesus as the one who created everything and that holds the entire universe together. He goes on at verse 6 and says, and again... When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him, right? To which of the angels would God say, let all the angels worship him? None. God will not give his glory to another. And that's not because he's vain. It's because he's every bit uh, as glorious as he should be. God cannot find anything better than him that he can make that's more worthy of glory and honor than himself. So when God makes sure that he is the only one that gets glory and worship, it's not because he's vain. It's not because he's self-focused. He's just doing what's right. Or of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds 
and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So he distinguishes him as above and distinct from all of them and even calls him God. And then he gives another quotation from the Old Testament, this one also from the Psalms. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So he defines the relationship. So for whatever reason, and he's not wasting an entire, paragraph, an entire chapter of scripture here for no purpose. What that means is there was something that is being spoken to here specifically not just in a redundancy, but it's perhaps the clearest chapter in the entire Bible that says Jesus Christ was not a created being and not an angel. He is something very different. And even raises him and gives him the titles of God to talk about how important he is in the creation. We usually focus on the humanness of Christ, which is not entirely wrong, right? God did not send his son into the world so that we would still think of God as aloof and far off which is a problem in us, right? God had Jesus Christ, the Son, the eternal Son, come into the world and take on human flesh so that we could touch him, so that we could hear him and see him. It's a condescension to our need, but also to our humanness, right? The, the other side of that is maybe we can focus on him as being a little too human. One of the worst, we talk a lot about uh, contemporary worship and the upsides and downsides of it, right? When, when we're going to sing a song here that's written in, by the contemporary church, there's usually about two out of ten that we can do in this church. <laughs> and it's not because they're necessarily bad. It's because they're more prone to be vague, right? Or you could be singing about Jesus, but you could also be singing about your girlfriend, right? And also you could be singing about God, or you could be singing about an exalted man who happens to be your best buddy and your pal. So there's this thing of also recognizing where Jesus is and who he is, while at the same time making him approachable. Because really, one day we will sit face to face with Christ, and we will be able to call him brother. Notice that we will never call him father. I know that sounds a little strange, right? But he was not created to be our father. He was created to be our brother and to sanctify our humanity through the manifestation of his own. We will call the Father, Father. We will call the Son, the Son. And we will call the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is triune Christianity. This is classic orthodoxy, right? God is not one person. We're all one person, so we just assume everybody's like us, right? But the God of Scripture, he is one God, but he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this classic question of orthodoxy. You can tell, you can Take it as a self-test. Did God the Father die on the cross? Yes. No. 
<laughs> or did the son die on the cross? But they're one the same. But they are not the same person. They are the same God. Did Jesus go to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven? And did he send a comforter? Is it classically accurate when we're being careful with our theology to say Jesus lives in my heart? It is actually not. Jesus never says he lives in our heart. He said, I will send a comforter to live in your heart and they will be with you always. I'm going back to the Father, but so you won't be alone, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the one that categorically lives in us, right? And the Father is the one to whom we pray in the name of the Son. They're all three working in everything they do, right? But the Father's not the Son, and the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father, right? They do different things, and they work together in everything in perfect and total agreement of will and intellect and love, but they are not the same person. They are the same God. I know that's a heavy one, but there's a reason why for 2,000 years, the church has made this a major and not a minor sticking point, right? We baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Ghost. We do not baptize just in the name of the Father. And the three names are not merely representations of one person that is God. Many people have brought this up. Isn't that self-contradictory? But remember, we're not saying that there's one God that's really three gods. That would be a contradiction. You might say, oh, well, it's a mystery, but it's also false. <laughs> you know. And we're not saying there's one person that's really three persons. You three at this table, you are three persons, right, that are also three beings. And that's what we're used to. God is one in being in essence that is eternally three persons. And he's revealed himself to be that by becoming in the person and the work of his son and the sending of the Holy Ghost. Is that mind-boggling? I don't claim to understand it. I claim that when God revealed himself, he said, this is what I'm really like. You want a little insight to what I'm really like? This is what I'm really like. I'm not one person like y'all. I'm three persons. I'm one God, but I'm three persons. How does that work? You know, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter. And to a certain extent, if you were to explain it to us, we probably wouldn't get it, right? It's like saying, God, explain to me how you're everywhere at once. Well, you'd kind of have to be everywhere at once to really get it, right? I mean, he could say, well, I'm also at Walmart right now. I mean, we can get that. But to understand what it's like to be everywhere and to know all things that will ever happen at all times in that one moment would blow our minds. And we can't truly and finally apprehend what it is to be one being and three persons. But God is three, not one. And this one, the son that he's focusing on here, he's saying is not a created being or an angel, even though he has a created nature. What we say about Christ is he's fully God and fully man, not mixed, not placed over each other. One is not above or diff uh, really different from the other. Fully God and fully man and yet one person. And so the one person of the son took on humanity. And so did the father take on humanity? He did not. The father is not fully God and fully man. Did the spirit take on humanity? He did not. He is not fully God and fully man. Only the son is fully God and fully man. Now, remember I told you, the two kind of heaviest books in the New Testament are Romans and Hebrews. We're doing Hebrews. If this is a little bit like, oh my goodness, that's the kind of book it is because the whole book 
is like that. Boom, 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 boom. There's lots of books that could have gone over that are kind of cute and fun, and this is not one of them. So we're going to close there, and there are many really interesting verses in this book that the entire church fights over today, including the loss of salvation, the distinction between Jews and Gentiles, what's going to happen at the end of the world. It's all in here, so we'll take it one piece at a time. Any questions before we close? Questions, attacks, accusations? No? Okay. Well, good. Let's pray. Lord, our God and Father, we thank you for this time of coming together in your name. You are so good to us always. We just pray that as we go through this book, you would continue to open it to us so that our eyes can see and apprehend these things, Lord. We know that no one really teaches anyone else, that only you teach us by the power of your spirit. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would grant us this gift. And we thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Oh,